Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, probably most of you in this room have read or watched or at least know the basic story of the Harry Potter series. I, because of largely uh, growing up in a more fundamentalist background, was wary of these books for some time. So I didn't read them until I was into my 30s, and I have to say I enjoyed them a great deal. And for those of you who haven't read them at this point, you might want to plug your ears because I'm about to give away a spoiler, and I would say it's the biggest spoiler, perhaps, of the whole series of books. In the final book, Professor Snape has his true identity revealed His motives become clear. What had been earlier in the book, a kind of cloud, you might say, hanging over his character, suddenly becomes a bright ray of sunshine. Snape had, from the beginning, always been the one who was reigning on the parade of Harry Potter and his friends. He was the one that was maybe in touch with the dark arts and maybe in cahoots with the bad wizards. Finally, in the fifth volume of the book, Snape reveals his true colors, or so we think, when he murders the beloved headmaster of Hogwarts, Albus Dumbledore. However, at the very end of the series of seven books, we find out that the entire time, Snape was following a plan of Dumbledore, something that had been laid out from the beginning, this elaborate plan that ultimately would save the muggle and wizarding world. And Snape is finally seen for the hero that he is. In fact, perhaps an even bigger hero than Harry Potter himself. But it's only after we got to peek behind the scenes that we were able to see this. There are some similarities to the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth is the story of a hero. The hero is one many do not even notice with a cursory reading. The hero is not Boaz, as loyal and as kind and as wise as he may be. It's not Ruth, as loyal and kind as she is. It's not even Naomi. No, the hero of the book of Ruth is God. Ruth is not about moralism, but about redemption. It's a book about two cities, the city of man and the city of God. It's about one who reigns and one who does not. It's about fruit But not fruit that produces salvation, but salvation that produces fruit. Ruth does not teach us how to be a nicer person. It doesn't even teach us how to have peace with God. It teaches us about a God who has made peace with us. It's the story of one who would bring ultimately rest to the kingdom of Israel, King David. But that rest was not perfect. And so it points us to a greater rest, a greater shalom, a greater peace that comes only 
through Jesus Christ. Let us never turn the story of God's redemption into law and moralism. We're hardwired for the law. It's natural to us. A frequent metaphor in the Old Testament used to describe the law is that it's sweet like honey. That it's like a fine wine. The problem is, is that the fall has rendered us incapable of obedience to the law. But God says we must keep that law perfectly. And he's right in saying so. There's a popular preacher today who likes to say, God would never require of us something we could never do. Last time I checked, God required total obedience to the law. That's why Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary was ultimately necessary. We need another one to keep the law on our behalf. But because we're hardwired for the law, we try to do it ourselves. We try to lift ourselves out of the mud. And we tend to look at these Old Testament stories, particularly books like Ruth, and see them as models, things to spur us on into good works, into ethical thinking and acting. One of those examples that I remember from my youth is the story of Noah. You know, the story of Noah where he was such a great guy. He was moral. He was ethical. And God rewarded his obedience and saved him rather than those other bad people. You remember that story? That's rubbish, and that's how I learned that story. You see, if you read Genesis 6 through 8, you find that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But you also find this general description of humanity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis chapter 6. Do you know what Genesis chapter 8 says? This is after Noah and his family come out of the ark and Noah has built an altar with a sweet, pleasing aroma to God. This is what God said. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Did you catch that? Humanity before and after the flood had the same problem. Noah and his family were the only ones left on earth. So Noah's heart was still filled with just as much sin as the rest of us. Noah was not the hero of that story. God is. God is the one who redeemed Noah and his family and saved them. And here's the point. The gospel in Genesis, the gospel in Ruth, is not about you or me. It's about what God has done. That's redemptive history. And from what God has done for you and me comes a change that allows us to see the beauty of the law, to seek obedience. But we can't get that in the wrong order. And so often we do. God is the hero of the book of Ruth. In fact, he is the hero of all the Bible. We would all be better Bible readers if we started seeing God at work redemptively in the scriptures 
rather than looking for ethical and moral tales. For from God's work and His redemption comes that change in ethics. It's been a while since we've looked at Ruth, so I want to remind you of what's going on before we come to the the fourth chapter today. And I want you to keep in mind our tendency as we go through the text to turn this into a moral tale and to avoid that at all cost. In chapter 3, Ruth went to Boaz in secret and offered a subtle wedding proposal where she says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz accepts the proposal, but there's some bad news that he brings up. There is another redeemer closer to Naomi and Ruth than him. And so Boaz, being a righteous person, is going to follow the law and offer the redemption to that other redeemer first. So when we come to the story in chapter 4, Boaz is now following through on his promise to Ruth to attempt to redeem her. So turn with me, if you would, to chapter 4 of Ruth. It's on page 8 in your worship guide. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said... I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. And all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have brought, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all of the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like those of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. 
So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Your word which speaks to our hearts by your spirit. Be with me this morning as I bring your word to your people. Speak through the words of my mouth and deliver your message to our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First thing I'd like to call your attention to in the text is that Boaz did not wait to take matters into his own hands. When Ruth returned from the threshing floor at the end of chapter 3, Naomi assured her in verse 18 that the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. How did Naomi know this? Had she talked to Boaz? There's no indication in the text that she had, but I think it's clear that all the way back in chapter 2, Naomi got it. Naomi recognized through two Hebrew words who Boaz was. Those words, if you recall, are the words... Chesed and Goel. Remember, Chesed is that covenant loyalty and kindness of God that he shows towards his people. And Goel is simply a kinsman redeemer. All this means simply is that Naomi saw Boaz for who he was. A man of the covenant who kept his promises and a man who could redeem her situation and her family. In chapter 3, we have Boaz's words to Ruth on the threshing floor. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Naomi is confident and knows that Boaz is focused on fulfilling those promises. This is how we should think about approaching our Goel, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We have seen his goodness. We have seen his work. We have his word to us. He came to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Or in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. These are his promises to us. We can trust them. We can go to him. Our redeemer will do all he says he will do. The next thing to notice is that Boaz goes up to the city gate Presumably in the morning. The city gate at this time had several functions culturally. It was the center of civic life. And it is the place where official administrative business was taken care of. 
One commentator points out that the phrase to go up to the gate that is used here was simply idiomatic for to go to court. So we can assume that by sitting there, Boaz has some business to conduct. There are a couple things I also want you to notice about this. First, the verse, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Sure, Boaz had a pretty good idea that he would be there, perhaps leaving in the morning to go out to his field outside of the city. In his wisdom, Boaz had managed everything out. But there's more. This word, behold. The last time we see this dramatic verb used in the text is when Boaz is coming to the field where Ruth is gleaning. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. In that context, if you recall, the author was playing with the idea of chance. That it was a chance happening and showing sarcastically that none of this was happening by chance. This was all God's design. Nothing happens by chance. There was no chance chanced upon, if you recall that. It was no mere chance that would bring this Redeemer to the city gate. God was sovereignly guiding the scene. In our reading today, just imagine what would have happened had this other Redeemer not shown up. The story could have gone very differently. Maybe he stayed home. Maybe he was ill. Maybe he was away on business. But behold, God is the one behind all of this. He is the hero of the story that is orchestrating the events to unfold as they did. As we move on from there, we see that Boaz calls to this other potential redeemer and says simply, friend. This is an amazing Hebrew moment. And I hope you enjoy this word as much as I do. But the English word friend doesn't really capture it unless we're meaning it slightly sarcastically. The Hebrew word is an idiomatic expression, poloni almoni, which means such a one or so and so. To get the point across, my favorite commentary on this said it's like calling the guy Joe Schmo. If we leave it as friend, as I said, You've got to hear the sarcastic overtones. You see, there's something redemptive happening here. The book of Ruth is actually very concerned about names. The book ends with this genealogy that we've just read to this connection between Ruth's child, Obed, to David. This guy, Poloni Almoni, is not even important enough to be mentioned in our story. By contrast, look at the names that are preserved in the book of Ruth. Even Naomi's dead children. Boaz someday will have his name enshrined in the temple of David's son Solomon. In 1 Kings 7.21, we read of the pillar of Boaz, a pillar of the king. This other redeemer is just Poloni Almoni, Joe Schmo. So why? Why is his name not remembered? It's what he's about to do in the story. As far as the laws concerning redemption by a goel and the Leverite marriage laws that were in play here, this guy decides not to keep them. If we imagine what might have been, Poloni Almoni could have been the one who redeemed Ruth and Naomi. He could have been the one whose name was in place of Boaz here. 
We read in verse 14 that a part of the blessing of the Redeemer is that his name is to be renowned in all Israel. We see in other places in the Old Testament that the disappearance of one's name is an occasion for great lament. If you've ever been to a concentration camp or a Holocaust memorial, one of the primary concerns that you see the Jewish people who have constructed these museums and these memorials have is the remembrance of names. It's a kind of salvific idea for them that the name goes on and will be remembered. In the New Testament, we learn that God's children are those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. For God to not know your name is to be lost eternally. Baloney Almoni does not follow through on his obligations when it does not profit him. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his own soul? Baloney Almoni's name will be silent to history, and he will forever be forgotten. As we look back to our text, the next thing we see is that Boaz Boaz asks the ten elders and this faux redeemer to sit. It's likely that Boaz was some sort of elder to be able to call this kind of impromptu session. But whatever the case may be, notice that he does not lead with the idea of marrying Ruth. He begins with the news that Naomi is selling a portion of land that belonged to her late husband, Elimelech. The selling of land in and of itself should be slightly startling to us. If you were a covenant-keeping Jew, you would never sell a piece of your land in the promised land because it showed not only financial ruin, but unfaithfulness. There was A kind of penalty if you were one that had to sell your piece of God's land to you. There was a lack of favor from God. We can only assume that Naomi has given the right to Boaz to sell Elimelech's land. So as the law required, Boaz offers the right of redemption to Poloni Almoni first. He says he will redeem it. But that's before he has the full story. But at this point, his response is both advantageous to himself to acquire the land, and it is also honorable. Through this act, he would preserve the estate and the name of his kinsman, and he would enlarge his holdings. However, Boaz, as we know from the story, introduces the other part of this redemption equation. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. But not just Ruth the Israelite, but Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In the borough authorized translation this morning, his response is, no way. Perhaps it's some sort of latent racism. It is odd that from the beginning of this story, Boaz has seen Ruth as an Israelite. 
because of her care, her chesed, her loyalty and loving kindness to Naomi. Why does he suddenly refer to her as a Moabite unless there's something going on here? But there's something else that's also very clear. The fact that his response is, that is the faux redeemer, lest I impair my own inheritance, tells you it's about money. The deal sounded good before the bottom line was going to be affected. The deal would now cost children with a foreigner who would then be a part of this man's inheritance. This was too much for him, and he immediately gives up his right of redemption to Boaz. A history of Israel shows that Poloni Almoni's answer to be consistent and true, even for the nation. Israel had come into the promised land, a land that was given to them by God himself. But it was given not just for them. It was given to them for the nations. Israel had the responsibility to properly represent God to the nations. They were to be set apart. They were to keep the law, the Sabbath, and so on. And they were to draw the nations in. That's what Israel was to do. But what did they do? They don't welcome the Gentiles. And they don't worship the true God in the way he is prescribed. And they don't desire the Gentiles to receive the blessing. Because ultimately it would take from themselves. Ruth the Moabite was from the lineage of the interracial mingling of Jew and Gentile, and Poloni Almoni didn't want his family or his inheritance being shared. Boaz, the mediating redeemer in a small way, takes part of the promised land from ethnic Israel and gives it to a Gentile who has become a true Israelite, not by birth, but by the sovereign mercy of God. Pastor Jeremy is going to be preaching in Romans 9. And this is a subject that comes up. God's sovereign choice. His inclusion, not his exclusion of Israel, but his inclusion of the Gentiles into the covenant. Ruth is going to be the grandmother of Israel's greatest king and Christ himself. Jesus was not ashamed of anyone, Jew or Gentile. He had both in his blood and in his lineage. The one that would crush the serpent's head was both Jew and Gentile. If we reject Christ, our Redeemer, we don't lose just a tract of land in Palestine. At stake is the visible church and the new heavens and the new earth. That's how great our redemption is. That is what is offered in our redemption. We have an inheritance in a place where there is no famine, where there is no death, where there is bread and wine overflowing. There is no night. There is no bitterness, only sweetness. And that Christ spreads his wing over us and we no longer desire sin. It is the house of God where we are promised to reign as priests, a holy nation, a place where our inheritance will not be destroyed by moth, rust or thieves. That's the promised land of which Israel's land is merely a type or a picture So as we marvel at Boaz's wisdom and the fact that he was willing to redeem the land, 
Ruth and even that share of the, his inheritance, let us not forget that it is God who is doing this. God is the hero of this story. And Boaz is to point us to that ultimate Goel, that ultimate redeemer, that ultimate hero, even Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, the weak become strong, the empty full, the poor rich, and the rejected accepted. As we go back now, consider the text in verses 7 through 11. We see this cultural ceremony that finalizes this deal. I wish we had more time here, but I do want to get to that potluck soon. So we will get to the blessing. The deal is finalized, and in verse 11 we get the blessing. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily of Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. How remarkable are these prophetic words. Each of the names mentioned has a specific redemptive significance. The inclusion of Gentiles, Tamar, into the line Ultimately, again, of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But specifically, I want us to focus on two names. Ruth, the Moabite, is compared with Rachel and Leah, the mother of the 12 tribes of Israel. These verses show that for all of Ruth and Naomi's hardship, God was now opening up the windows of heaven. He chose them in his chesed, his covenant love for them. In his kindness, he is restoring and blessing them beyond anything that they could ever imagine. God is at work and God is the hero. Notice now in verse 13 that Boaz took Ruth to be his wife and the Lord gave her conception And she bore a son. This is actually the first time in the book that we see God intervening in some direct way. This should lead us to consider some of these other miraculous births. Remember Genesis 21 and Sarah, Rebecca, Genesis 25, Leah in Genesis 29, Rachel in Genesis 30. All of these women gave birth to blessing bearers. Blessing bearers of the covenant. And each of these women had at one point been barren. Unable to have children. This should point us again to a virgin. Who became pregnant with child by the Holy Spirit. You see, none of these children were born by human decision. But by God's directive. Even in this God is at work and God is the hero. Now notice in verse 14 what the women say. It would seem that these are the same women that we heard from in chapter 1. Those who said, is this Naomi? Remember Naomi coming back from Moab had spent 10 years there and she had sin written all over her face. 
She did not look like the same person. She was almost unrecognizable. But now these women say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. So who are they talking about? Whose name is to be renowned? It's not Boaz. It's the child. Boaz, child Obed, is in fact a greater redeemer in this context. Notice again the phrase, may his name be renowned. The prayer is that this child would become famous. And in some sense, that's my prayer for all of us. Not in some Hollywood-esque sense, but that God would use us in his plan of redemption in this world, that we could be the heroes and heroines in this great drama. I pray that we would all become heroes in God's salvation history because of what God will do through us. And by the way, I'm not talking about some extraordinary things. I'm not talking about anyone parting the Red Sea, but through ordinary, simple daily life as ordinary people that God has called. Because that's what the book of Ruth is. Ordinary people, foreigners, landowners, farmers, women, widows, men, destitute, young, old, bitter, kind. No one is outside of the handiwork of God. We are all in his hands. He is the potter. And we are the clay as the metaphor goes. These women are more prophetic in their blessing of Obed than they know. This birth that they are celebrating will lead to the the future birth of the most famous person who ever lived. The one who would be the only name given under heaven by which we might be saved. That's pretty good, being renowned. The women go on to point out that this child should be a restorer of Naomi's life and of her very soul as it is renewed. First, this child changes Naomi's identity and who she has become. Second, the child will meet her physical needs as a nourisher of her old age. And these are two things that we today need. We need our physical sustenance and our spiritual hope coming from Christ, coming from God. Obed represents this in our story for Naomi. So obviously I'm laboring the point that God is the hero in all of this. But I want to take you back through the book just briefly to consider the big points. One, in chapter one, God intervenes in the lives of his people to bring them back to the promised land. God is the hero by chance. Sarcastically, I say, Ruth happened upon Boaz field in Ruth chapter 2. At the nighttime meeting between Boaz and Ruth, they understood God's loving kindness and they applied it to marriage. That is God's doing. We also saw today in our text that at the city gate, God gave the right of redemption to Boaz. And now God has opened the womb of Ruth to give a son. Where there was only barrenness and emptiness, God has come in and changed the situation. But that's not even the best part. The son born to Naomi and Ruth would be a blessing to all people. The child's name, Obed, 
is short for Obadiah. And that name means the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God. The child points us again over and over these references. The child points us to the one who was the true servant of Yahweh, Jesus Christ. The one who came to not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We must see in Scripture and in all of salvation how God serves us. Jesus, the great servant of Yahweh. It's what we see at the table. He serves us. And this comes as news, I'm afraid, to many who call themselves Christian in our churches today. But this is the biblical order. He gives, we receive. It's the easiest thing to mess up. For the son of Obed, Jesus Christ came to serve, not to be served. That's the gospel. We can't mess that up. And God, through being a servant, shows us what it's like to be a real hero. So what's the main point of the book? I would argue that God is the hero who is providentially reigning and ruling over all things according to his most perfect and holy will. That's what Ruth is about. It's not a story about being loyal and honorable. Although those are certainly some good secondary applications for us. But primarily it's about God and his work. And the extraordinary thing is is that he calls us to join him as servants. He calls people like Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz to accomplish his will. Let us all read the scripture better. Let us see the larger redemptive plan of God and serve with gladness. And most of all, let us not forget to be served by the true servant of God. If you recall, Peter refused initially to have his feet washed. If you will not be served by Christ, there is no place for one of us in the kingdom of God. For to be served by Christ is what it means to be a Christian. And all of our ethics and all of our good works are to flow out of that relationship. Let us see the hero of the Bible text. Let us see Christ, the servant of all. Amen.